This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Walton Family Foundation, actively working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Humans are changing the planet in unprecedented ways. Natural resources are being utilized at record levels to support exponential population growth, a faltering food system, and a struggling global economy. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti joined the Washington Post to discuss how his city is preparing for the effects of global warming and harnessing technology to ensure a sustainable future. Let's listen. Welcome back. Once again, I'm Francis Steed Salas, a senior writer for the Washington Post. This is the second half of our program on conservation and sustainability, and we're moving from the big global questions we've just heard about to the more regional ones, with the mayor of Los Angeles, sorry, Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, who's here to talk with me about his own commitment to sustainable development and to a Green New Deal. Welcome, Mayor Garcetti. Great to be with you, Francis. Thanks for having me. You are also the leader of two consortiums on, of mayors, one national and one international, that have made commitments to climate change. change. Yes, I'm uh, the leader and co-founder of Climate Mayors, a bipartisan group of mayors across the country uh, that are not only doing the hard work at the local level of implementing um, the work to combat the climate emergency, but we also, when President Trump indicated that the United States would withdraw from Paris, we now have over 400 mayors who have committed to implementing Paris in their town, in their city, in their local government, um, in 48 of the 50 states in America. And I also chair C40 Cities, which is the global network of now 96 uh, cities, the largest cities in the world, responsible for a quarter of the world's GDP, uh, who are leading the way uh, in whether it's electrification of transportation and buildings, um, looking at the way that we can make sure we have a green energy sector. We are sharing those best practices while responding to a pandemic simultaneously. Right. And before I ask you more specifically about some of those in initiatives you're undertaking in Los Angeles uh, for climate change, I would like to uh, have an update from you about what's happening with the COVID pandemic there. How are you doing and how are you managing um, levels of hospitalizations? Well, our hospitalizations are now down about 20% from the peak that they were a couple of weeks ago. I think people received the message that this was on all of us. This wasn't just about what's open and closed. It's about our own behavior, whether it's masks or mixing households, uh, things that we have to do or that we shouldn't do. And um, we are seeing some good stabilization. We've never had the mass kind of deaths that we saw on the Eastern Seaboard, and we didn't see the huge jump that we saw in the Sun Belt uh, just in the last few weeks. So we're holding steady in a city that's very vulnerable, very dense, very diverse. Um, but I'm proud of the work we've done. First city to wear masks and mandate them. First city to have widespread testing, whether you have symptoms or not. First city to close the race gap between African-American deaths and population, um, and so much more. So our tests are turning around 23 hours uh, response time. We're holding on and you know people are struggling through this, but I think Los Angeles is helping lead the way that this is really about our collective action together. And talk about fighting on many fronts, but you also have a wildfire. Um, how is how much of that is under control now? So the wildfire, which is the east of Los Angeles and Riverside uh, and San Bernardino counties, I believe, is uh, now. Um, remember, when you hear 5% contained, that just means 5% is never going to come back at all. So I think it's well encircled right now. Um, there's a lot of hard work going on. We know uh, in California, I always say, if you are still a climate denier, ask a firefighter. Uh, he or she will tell you that this is real and these extreme fires that are part of the extreme weather uh, here in California and around the world. It might be hurricanes on the East Coast, but here it's fires. Uh, we feel confident that that fire can be controlled, but 
as we've seen in past seasons, it's when three or four of these break out simultaneously that we're really stretched to the brink and we've even lost our firefighters in the midst of this struggle. And now you're facing the, the, the combined combination of the problems of displacement with uh, fighting the COVID pandemic, right? Absolutely. Uh, and we see that, you know, long before we were told to stay in our homes, we've seen people who have been displaced out of their homes, whether that's because of economic inequalities um, and homelessness, or whether it's because of some of the things that we see when we see extreme climate, um, like the fires that take people out of their homes, Paradise, which was so powerfully shown in a documentary that, that came out this week. Um, we know that this is really about human beings. It's not just about our planet. And I always use that language because I think many of us do want to save the planet, but a lot of human beings think that that's a very abstract thing. Don't tell me about saving the planet. Tell me about my life and my livelihoods. And increasingly, human beings are recognizing this is about our families, our communities, our jobs, our homes. And I think that's the language that those of us fighting this climate emergency need to continue to adopt. Well, the climate mayor's recently sent a letter to congressional leadership calling for a green and equitable recovery. Explain to me what that looks like. Absolutely. And, and by the way, we've also convened at the global level. I asked the mayor of Milan uh, to look at COVID-19 and we put out an interim report uh, globally on what we think recovery from this pandemic should look like. There's a few principles um, and we have a global Green New Deal that we've put out for as part of my chairmanship of C40 that really does look at first accepting that this is a climate emergency. The second is making sure that the investments in the future adhere to the 1.5 degree um, rise in temperature uh, and no more that is in the Paris uh, Climate Accords. But third, the most important part we think both locally and internationally is making sure that our recovery is equitable. We have to fold in the inequality that is in our societies and in our world to any of the responses. So no stimulus that's not a green stimulus, investments in public transportation, looking at cities as the engines and sustainable cities as the engines of coming back out of this crisis. And also looking at things like um, no longer investing and completely divesting from fossil fuels, whether that's in our pension funds or whether that's in our operations. Cities collectively can lead the way. As I mentioned, the C40 cities are a quarter of the world's GDP. So we're more powerful than any one nation in what we can do to put that forward. But right now, we can't go back to normal. We told Congress, don't return to the way things were, because if that means pollution, if that means traffic, if that means heating our planet, the normal is not acceptable. We have to reimagine and reinvest in where the growth will be for jobs, but also where the health will be for human beings. So do you think Congress has the political will to move forward on these suggestions right now? Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like a crisis, right? I've been joking that Republicans are acting like Democrats and Democrats like Republicans. What do I mean by that? You know, when we came together for the first CARES Act, the Democrats didn't get in our own way with a ton of new regulations. We kind of said, let's spend this quickly. And Republicans said, let's spend. Um, so I think when we see a crisis, wartime leadership um, is the kind of metaphor, is much different than peacetime leadership. This is not about just every coalition and taking two or three years to bring these things together. This is about taking brave action. And I think the nice thing about bringing mayors to this is I can bring the Republican mayor of Carmel, Indiana, or I can uh, you know, point out the coalition that we have in the reddest of states where people realize they save money, they save lives when they invest in a green city. Um, they look at ways to reduce their costs, but they also realize, you know, Mayor Suarez, the Republican mayor of Miami, uh, is one of the cities most endangered by sea rise. And he's a member of C40. He's a, one of the leaders of climate mayors as well. And it was funny when we all sat down as mayors once, 
Um, there was the mayor of Cincinnati, and he had a whole conversation over dinner. And afterwards, mayor of Cincinnati said, you're a, a Democrat, right? And he said, no, I'm actually a Republican, but you're a Republican, right? And the mayor of Cincinnati said, no, I'm a Democrat. These things really transcend these, these reductive um, and dead-end um, kind of partisan uh, divides when we realize this is about protecting our people, which is our first and last responsibility. And yet we seem to have had an unprecedented politicization of public health and other things in this disaster. At the federal level, of course, and I put that squarely at the feet of, of our Congress and our president. But I'll tell you, I was talking to Larry Hogan, the uh, outgoing head of the National Governors Association yesterday about testing. Um, we put together calls three times a week of all the California big city mayors. A group of us are Republicans, a group of us are Democrats, and there's even a, a completely independent person who is neither. So I think that those of us that are in the midst of this look at that sort of partisanship and just say, this is the most irresponsible time. You look up in Canada where the conservatives praise the liberals for what they've done on public health. This is a moment for us to praise each other. I, I'll praise the Republican governor of Ohio because he's done a great job. And I'll call out a Democrat who isn't doing a good job uh, when it comes to this. But we have seen no glue come from this White House when it comes to leading on this pandemic. And certainly worse than no glue, we've seen hostility when it comes to climate. Uh, the, you know, President Trump will be kind of the death cough of the flat earth society of our generation who would deny that this is happening to our planet and somehow think that they could just close their eyes, bury their head in the sand and pretend this isn't happening. That will be his legacy and I hope it will be in the dustbin of history. Um, last year in Los Angeles, you announced a Green New Deal uh, that was to be carbon neutral by I think 2050. Uh, what steps have you already put into place and are you able to, given the other uh, fronts you're fighting on at the moment? Absolutely, and I, I, I encourage people to check it out because it actually was the second iteration of our uh, sustainability plan. Cities often do these and then they get shelved away and administrations change. I wanted to do it differently. I wanted a green print that had the next year goals, two years after that goals, five-year goals. And we have um, over a hundred different things that from the five big zeros, as I call them, zero trans uh, zero carbon transportation, zero carbon buildings, zero carbon electricity, zero waste, and zero waste water, which is very important, not just because of the droughts that we face, but the electricity that we use to move water around our state. And in all of them, uh, I'll give you one example. When it comes to water, we are going to recycle 100% of our water. In the next 15 years, we'll build that out. About 60% of our water use gets uh, cleaned, uh, coming from our sewers and other places, washed out to the ocean, which doesn't need it. We're going to use that, and that's three times more water uh, that will be completely clean, completely usable, uh, not have to be pumped from another state or from uh, Northern California. And it's three times the size of the LA aqueduct, which famously William Mulholland built. We're shutting down um, our gas plants that uh, we rely on in basin for our electricity and replacing them with the cheapest, largest uh, battery storage solar uh, um, plant in American history that is less than starting a new um, natural gas plant. Um, we're looking at 100% uh, of our buses being electric by 2028 when the Olympics and Paralympics come here of our city fleet and of our LA Metro fleet a year or two after that. Um, we're doing things now where we see those rolling out already uh, because you can't afford to wait. And my uh, you know, push to all my fellow mayors is uh, don't be left behind. There's a lot of jobs in this as well. In fact, one out of four jobs in Los Angeles that we have added 
have been related in some way to a green industry. So if you're a city that wants to wait for others to do it, you're going to see these industries, uh, this manufacturing, um, these good middle-class jobs and careers go someplace else. But if you adopt them early, you can see a pathway for a more equitable economy as well as a better environmental health for all of us. Let me jump in for a second on this. One of these issues is cars, right? And I think of Los Angeles. I lived in Irvine for a while. I remember people driving for long hours from place to place. Your plan calls for 80% of cars to be either electric or zero uh, emission fuel. How are you going to bring Angelinos out of their cars onto public transportation? How are you going to incentivize this sort of program? Well, as you said, it's both. People could stay in their cars if they're electric. I've been driving an electric car since 1997 when the GM EV1 came out. And um, you know, to me, once you get into an electric car, I don't think you'll ever go back to a gas car. They're just better. Um, they're better for maintenance. They break down less. They're wonderful to drive. Uh, but with public transportation, I think there's two or three things you have to do. One is you have to invest in a fleet that obviously is zero emissions. Two, build out a network that works. And we passed the largest measure in U.S. history times two of any local government to build and expand 15 rapid transit lines in famously spread out Los Angeles. So finally, to our airport where we've never had public transportation, in our southeast cities, which have, are some of the most working class, most Latino areas of Los Angeles, but have never had a rail line. Um, connecting these lines downtown, um, investing in busways. We're looking at alternative technologies from monorail um, to you know, the dedicated BRTs, bus rapid transit lanes, um, and even working with folks like Elon Musk on, on tunneling um, to get to Dodger Stadium and potentially other parts of our city. So that is a way to make it, uh, I think, more attractive and connect people to where they need to go. But second, it's our goal to make it also free. That's not gonna be done overnight, but we've already done that with our students and our LA city buses where we have a guarantee if you're a high school student or a community college student, you can travel for free. Uh, these are customers in the future. Uh, these are folks who will uh, take us onto transit. And you talk to a young person, they don't wanna buy or own their own car if they can, and many can't afford to anyway. So we have to, especially coming out of COVID-19, make public transportation much more attractive. And one of the ways to do that, I think, with targeted populations at first, is to make it free to ride public transportation and really bring the promise of it forward. I'm still stunned given the, the sprawling nature of Los Angeles. You know, electric cars are great for people who can afford them, but how isn't this sort of uh, injecting more inequality in some ways, forcing people to into electric cars, which are expensive? No, I mean, right now you have electric cars that are costing the same um, as their, their gas counterparts. They're certainly expensive models if you want to as well, and that will only continue to come down. But we wanted to go further. We invested in a car program that's electric cars that you can swipe out and basically rent by the um, hour. And we put them first in the poorest neighborhoods of, of Los Angeles and communities of color to say that we don't think you should have to buy a you know expensive Tesla to be a part of this transportation revolution. And so those, instead of putting them in places that were higher income, we went to lower income areas with a different model that allowed people to have that transportation on their own when they need that. And it's been very successful. So we're continuing to look at models to make sure everything we do, we put through the three E's, environment, equity, and the economy. And when we did that um, seven years ago, when I put out my first plan, people said, you're crazy to be talking about equity and the economy in an environmental plan. Now it's mainstream. The Green New Deal has come forward at the national level, our global Green New Deal at the international level. And people realize in this pandemic, whether it's health 
or whether it's our fight against climate emergency, if you're not looking at inequality, economic inequality, job opportunity, racism, the way that um, years and decades and centuries of the way we've structured things um, kill people at an unequal rate because of environmental degradation, then you're not doing your job. And I'm glad to say Los Angeles has made that not just an issue area, but a prism through which we refract every policy we enact. So buildings, why is it that buildings in Los Angeles are the biggest source of climate pollution and how will you address that specifically? Well, globally they are as well, whether it's in a cold climate, uh, the heat that you use, or in a warmer climate like ours, the air conditioning. Um, but we know that this is bang for the buck for building owners. Uh, they can actually reduce their costs. Uh, the greener the building is, the cheaper it is to, to maintain. But we also know that's where most of us spend our time. So buildings, whether they're homes or our workplace, that's where we consume the most electricity. So we are, as a city, adopting that we will have uh, zero uh, fossil fuels in new buildings that we build. Uh, we're looking at that and helping, really right now, this is more of a financing question uh, than um, a good public policy. I think everybody agrees this is good public policy, but there's two things we have to consider. How will we finance the often very expensive upfront money that absolutely pays for itself over the long term? And so we're convening funders and banks and investors and pension groups, both with climate mayors and C40 cities, to look at how we can do that globally. And then secondly, we have to look at the jobs. When we do change how we consume our electricity in buildings, um, it uh, affects different folks who in the past have been part of natural gas or um, oil. And we have to make sure that they're at the front of the line getting the jobs of being the electricians or the, the maintenance folks with new technologies that will reduce our emissions, but continue to have middle-class jobs. I think that's a really legitimate criticism when people say to environmentalists, you just want to do these things, but you don't realize that people uh, without a college education who can't necessarily be easily retrained won't have any work. But we need to put that at the front. And so we're working with our community colleges to do just that, to train people in a pipeline, to be able to make sure that they are part of saving the earth, but also saving their livelihoods for their families too. I have a, a viewer question for you, which I'm going to read to you right now. It's from Charlie Chalstrom from Maryland, who asks, what are the top three most effective local government climate action, climate change actions? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I think it's around transportation and electrifying uh, vehicles, both helping the private sector do that and calling on all local governments to do that. Over half of our vehicle purchases, uh, well over half now, are fully zero emission vehicles. Uh, second, where we control some of the big levers, whether it's a utility and we have the largest municipal utility, or whether it's a port and we have the largest uh, port in the Americas, um, or an airport. These are places where you can enact policies. For instance, I think electric trucks, the time has come. And uh, when the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach, responsible for 40% of the goods that come into America, adopt targets and incentives for zero emission trucks, that will change the marketplace. Um, so second, it's using the leverage that you have as local government to buy and to mandate. And then I think third, it's really incentivizing, and people forget about this because it's not as sexy seeming, good planning. When you have neighborhoods that uh, integrate together uh, where we shop, where we eat, where we work, where we live, where we study, and not in a city like Los Angeles spread those out into different places, then that's really where we will reduce our emissions, reduce our vehicle miles traveled, reduce um, the need that we have to be able to be away from our families and spend time in traffic. Uh, those are the three biggest things, really good planning, using the leverage that you have um, if you're a city that controls some of these larger things to drive marketplaces. Uh, and then of course, what we can do uh, straight up front on transportation and electrification. 
So I have a couple of questions for you about and, and your role as uh, co-chair of Vice President Biden's campaign. Yes. What advice have you given him in his search for a running mate? Uh, so I'm very honored that, that he uh, called on me, as well as being a national co-chair, to be one of the four co-chairs of that search. Uh, he gave us the advice, which is he said, I'm not looking for a demographic or a geographic or a political decision. I'm looking for the best person. And he had such an extraordinary relationship with Barack Obama. He's looking for that woman who can give him the best advice before the biggest decisions, who can really uh, be his partner and who can uh, be deployed, whether it's on Capitol Hill or to a foreign capital. The advice I've given him is find the person that you will work with the best. It's a reflection of you, who you pick, um, and not in political terms, but in personal terms. And I think that as long as he can explain to the American people why, with a group of extraordinary women, all of whom, by the way, I want to say publicly, could be exceptional vice presidents. So they're all winners in my mind. There's not uh, one winner and the rest. Uh, that he can explain to the American people why he is has chosen this woman to make history and also to help us rebuild this country, then we will understand that his vision of restoring the soul of America and building back better, this will be, I think, the most important year of our lives, not just the election, but the coming year, how we build back. And we have seen just extraordinary things come out of this man already, bringing the different factions of our party together, bold plans on the environment, bold plans on racism, bold plans on uh, the care economy, and bold plans on manufacturing. He will restore our place in the world but I know that he will do that with a wonderful woman by his side. Let me ask you specifically whether you advise him to look at, to consider mayors and what you would say about the issue of whether they have enough national experience. Oh, absolutely. I think mayors uh, absolutely do. They, they are chief executives. <laughs> You're we a deal fan with, of you know, uh, that, that was an easy one. Um, when it comes to climate, um, we are on the front lines of that. When it comes to international trade, when we run things like our ports and airports, we know that better than some people on Capitol Hill. We know uh, homeland security because unfortunately incidents happen on the ground in our areas. Uh, and we understand, I think, how economies work and this pandemic especially. So whether it's a governor, a mayor, or an exceptional legislator or somebody outside of government, uh, I know that the vice president is looking for someone who can be the president, um, who can be the vice president, and who can be the counselor that, this, that he needs individually. So, but of course, I would always say that mayors, I think um, in most other countries, mayors of big cities go on to be the prime ministers or presidents. Here, that seems like a bigger jump, but not in my mind at all. So if uh, Senator Kamala Harris is his pick, will you run for her Senate seat? Uh, no, I have no plans to run for her seat. He gets actually an appointment uh, that would go to the governor. Um, and then, you know, two years later, ask me, but I'm every single day focused on saving lives with COVID-19, uh, trying to bring mayors together globally uh, to confront this crisis, to build racial justice in America. Uh, you know, ask me in a year when we're out of this one. I don't think about the future when we're in the midst of the greatest struggles we've ever faced. But I do have so much love and confidence for elected officials right now. This has been the toughest time, I think, to be an elected official. Um, I read history and in pandemics, they usually throw everybody out and often kill them at least in medieval uh, Europe, whenever there were pandemics. So things are, I think, a little bit better than that. But I just have seen the courage, not just of elected officials, but everyday Americans dealing with a crisis that we never asked to come, then the economy tanking, and then finally, uh, this opportunity to birth a, racial, a multiracial democracy. Uh, so uh, I'm focused very much on day to day, proud of what Los Angeles is doing to lead. And my commitment is to my people right here. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. And I want to thank you very much, Mr. Mayor, for joining me today. Always a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. 
To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.